I'm very honored to be here, and I was praying about, thinking about what to share with you today, and I was thinking about uh, more years than I probably care to admit when I was sitting where you were sitting as a seminary student. And I graduated from Midwestern in 2001, and so uh, there's been a lot of changes around here since then, and uh, a lot of businesses on this corner. When I was here, this whole corner, this whole area was just a big field, and it was just nothing but the school here, and so much has changed. But uh, I can remember when I was a student, and God had called me to ministry, I, I kind of had this innate sense of I, I kind of wanted to be great, and by that, I meant I wanted to pastor a big church, and I wanted to get to go speak at places, and maybe get to write a book. And uh, I have been a pastor now for about 30 years. And I want to share with all of you something I've learned in my 30 years of pastoring churches. Uh, I have learned that when I first started out, my idea of greatness is actually something very different than God's idea of greatness. And I want to tell you, it's easy to misunderstand that. We're going to read a passage of Scripture in just a moment, Matthew chapter 20, and it begins with verse 20. And it may be a passage that's familiar to many of you, but it is going to be the disciples, James and John, two of the inner three of Jesus' disciples. And we're going to see how they, along with their mother, have actually come to Jesus towards the end of his earthly ministry, and they haven't misunderstood greatness. So let me just begin by, by asking you to look at me, and let me tell you this. Don't, don't begin to listen to a message about misunderstanding greatness and humility and servanthood. Don't kind of tune me out and, and say to yourself, oh, that would never happen to me. Let me tell you, if it happened to James and John, it can happen to you and it can happen to me. And it's quite easy to misunderstand. It's quite easy to get confused about what greatness really is. Now, the world has an idea of what makes you great. Here's what makes you great. Do you have a lot of money? Do you have a lot of power? Do you have a lot of fame? Can you dunk a basketball? Can you throw a touchdown pass? Uh, can you record a Grammy-winning song? Can you win an Academy Award? These are the things that makes you great. As a matter of fact, if you'll just look right here, I, I'm going to kind of take this posture, all right? And the world kind of says, hey, this is the picture of greatness. And I want you to just remember me doing this because when we finish here in just a few minutes, we're going to come full circle back to this. The world says, this is what makes you great. Now, uh, pastor in Emmanuel Baptist Church in, in Shawnee for almost 20 years, Oklahoma Baptist University is there. And uh, in 2013, OBU started up football again. Okay, Now, we'd been on a long hiatus since World War II. In fact, when I was a student at OBU in 19, none of your business, um, we had T-shirts. And the T-shirt said, OBU football undefeated since 1945. It's true. We were undefeated since 1945. Now, we hadn't played a game since then. Now, 2013 comes, and we start football. We lost the first game. We all had to throw those T-shirts away. But one of the great privileges I had as the pastor of the church there was I got to be the chaplain for the football coaches there at OBU. And principally, that meant that I did their weekly Bible study. I love those guys. I love getting to know those guys. Now, if, if you're not familiar, a, a, a college football coach is a 365-day-a-year job. Because when the season is over, they really hit it into high gear on the recruiting trail. 
Now, these football coaches that I got to, I got to minister to, they had this kind of little funny story that they like to tell amongst themselves. And I want to share it with you because it really sets us up for this passage of Scripture that we're going to study. And the story goes like this. Now, the season ends... And it's time for the, uh, the, the head coach and all the assistants to go on the recruiting trail. And so the head coach calls in all the assistants and he says, Now, guys, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about the kind of player that we want for our program. And so all the assistant coaches get out pen and paper. All right, coach, give it to us. What, what's the kind of player that we want? And, and, and the head coach goes, Now, you know there's that kind of player that when he gets knocked down, he just stays down. And the assistants go, well, we don't want that kind of player. We don't want that. that. That's right. He says, but then there's that kind of player. He gets knocked down. He gets up. But when he gets knocked down again, he just stays down. And the assistants are like, oh, no, we don't, we don't want that kind of player either. Coach, coach says, right. And then the head coach says, but then there's that kind of player. Every single time he gets knocked down, he gets back up. You knock him down, he gets back up. You knock him down, he gets back up. And all the assistants go, yeah, coach, that's the kind of player we want. And the head coach says, no, I want you to go find me the guy knocking everybody down. (laughs) See, we think greatness is when I can knock everybody down, run everybody over, tell people what to do. But let's read now in Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to see that Jesus has a very, very different idea of what makes you great. And I want to just preface before we read this passage in Matthew 20, verse 20. I want to preface that that Salome, the mother of James and John, she's going to come to Jesus. And she's basically going to say to Jesus, she's going to say, Jesus, now make my sons great. I want one to sit at your right hand, and I want one to sit at your left. And one of the fascinating things to me about this passage of Scripture is Jesus does not rebuff her for that. You'll note he doesn't condemn her. Oh, you should never seek to be great. No, actually, Jesus says, if you want to be great, wonderful. Seek to be great. Here's the catch. Your definition of greatness and my definition of greatness are two very, very different things, which we're about to see. So Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, let's just look at this text. And the first thing that I want you to see is let's not be confused about what true greatness really is. Now, if we just look here and we get a little bit of some literary context, you'll notice if you just look across the page, chapter 21 is the beginning of the Passion Week. 
Chapter 21 begins with the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday. So we're at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, meaning these disciples, and these two in particular, they have been with Jesus now for approximately three years, night and day, and even after having been with Jesus for that length of time, they still don't get it. And we really understand that when we look right here where we said, look at verse 17. We, We didn't read this, but let me just read verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, students, listen. In Matthew's gospel, this isn't the first time that Jesus has predicted his death. It's not the second time. He's predicted his death. It's the third time that he has predicted his death. And here is Jesus. He says, for the third time, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. We're on our way there now. I'm going to die on a cross for your sin very shortly. And what is their response to that news? Here it is. Hey, what's in it for me? If we could put it in a little bit of a parallel... If you came to me and said, hey, Brother Todd, I just got back from the doctor's office, and I just found out that I have stage four terminal cancer, and I have four to six months to live, and you told that news to me, and I looked you in the eyes and reached in my pocket and tossed you my car keys and said, hey, it rained a little last night, got my car a little dirty, run down there and wash it for me, would you? What have I just communicated to you? I don't care a thing about you. I really just care about me. And you see here, on the heels of Jesus predicting his death for them, all they're really interested in is, well, do I get to sit at your right or at your left? Now, you want some more clues to their misunderstanding of all this greatness. Just look right in where we've read. Look at verse 21. So, Salome comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want you to do something for me. Jesus says, what do you want? And look at her response in verse 21. She said to him, say that these two sons of mine... Now, just just stop right there. Don't, Don't miss this right here. Here she is looking at Jesus, and she says, say. It's a It's a fairly strong word. In fact, your translation may even say the word command. Hey, Jesus, command. Now, don't don't miss what you just saw right here. Here she is, and she's come to Jesus, who is God, God in the flesh. This is Jesus who created the universe with a word. He created her. And you notice that she has come to him, and she is commanding him. Now, I don't want to come here today and be your guest preacher and be all hellfire and brimstone and do all that kind of thing, but I want every one of you to look at me, and I want to tell you something right now. If you ever get to a place in your life where you are telling God what to do, that's a bad place to be. Our job is not to be here to tell God what to do. Our job is to listen to God, and he will tell us what to do. Our job is not to come to this book right here and insert our own meaning into it. No, our job is to come to this book and let this book insert meaning into us. We don't tell the Bible what is true. God is telling us what is true through the Bible. And here's another little clue in here. 
Say that these two sons of mine are to, look at the next word, sit, one at your right and one at your left. Now, why is she asking this? I want my sons to sit. Incidentally, I think you, you, you could argue when she says, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. I think you could argue here even more of this misunderstanding of Jesus and the Messiah has come to be. In your kingdom, it, 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 it perhaps is true that she still thinks, along with the others, that in any moment now, Jesus is going to pull the sword out and he's going to overthrow the Romans and the Jews are going to go back to having their independent rule like they did for 100 years before Jesus was born. And they don't understand that Jesus has come to liberate them all right. But he has come to liberate them from something far worse than Roman oppression. He has come to liberate them from the condemnation and the damnation of their sin. But sit. Now, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get out of protocol here, but uh, I'm going to sit. Okay? It's kind of nice to... Preach sermon while sitting. Uh, what am I doing when I sit? I'll help you. Nothing. I'm not doing a single thing. And when she says, Jesus, I want, I want my sons of mine to sit, what I think she's probably saying here is, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I don't want my boys serving. I want my boys to be served. You see, nothing. Now, you might look at me and say, now, hey, Brother Todd, where are you getting that? Well, I think I get it from the very end of the passage, because what did Jesus say? Jesus, just watch me here, Jesus did not come to this earth to sit and be served. No, he came to this earth to serve, and he took this posture to do it. Now, let's, let's ask ourselves this question. Why is this Salome's approach here? Why is she in a place where she's commanding God what to do? Uh, why, why does she want her boys to not serve but to be served? Here's my take on this. We get to the end of his three-year ministry on earth. Here we are. I think she's taken this posture with Jesus because she thinks that her boys are owed this by God. Now, Jesus, my boys have been you since the very beginning. I mean, they gave up everything. They gave it all up so they could follow you. And for three years now, day and night, they've been with you. And you know what, Jesus? They deserve this. So one more time, not trying to be hellfire and brimstone, but look at me. And I want to tell you something. This is as solid and plain and clear and transparent as I can tell you. Listen to me say this to you. God does not owe you a thing. He doesn't. And the reality is, for a lot of Christians, this is the functional way in which we relate to God. Hey, God, I've been a Christian for 50 years. God, I've gone to church for 50 years. I've taught Sunday school for 40 years. There's no telling how much money I've given in the plate. There's no telling. And so here's the thing, God, you owe this to me. I deserve to not get cancer. I deserve to not lose my job. I deserve to not have a prodigal child. I deserve, I, friends, 
God doesn't owe you anything. And I want to tell you another kind of hard truth here. If God gave us what we deserved, none of us would want it. I am thankful for his grace. Now, if we can just apply this to the room. As ministers of the gospel, please do not have this attitude that you are deserved all of this stuff. I can tell you, I can learn from 30 years of being a pastor, there are few things as odious as a minister of the gospel who is entitled. That is a terrible attitude to have. Remember, God has called you to the ministry, not to sit and be served, but to serve. And so, friends, let's don't misunderstand what greatness is here. Now, here's another thing I think in this passage of Scripture I want to share with you for a second. Greatness is not found in, in, in power or position or fame or money or any of these things that we would say. And you kind of, you see this here, not only in the words of Jesus about the Gentiles ruling it over them, but in this next part of the text that comes up, you see what's happened is Salome has taken her two sons, James and John, and they've kind of waited for the 10. They're over here distracted doing something. And, and they've kind of done a little bit of an end around. They've, they've come to Jesus. It's kind of like, hey, I want to get to Jesus first. Jesus, surely you're about to come into your kingdom here. And so when you do, I, I want my one boy to be vice president. And I want my other boy to be secretary of state. Incidentally, the text here is fascinating because the pronouns are start off singular. She comes to him. He says to her. She asks him. He replies to her. All singular until you get to the part. Are you able to drink the cup? And then the pronouns switch to the plural. They answer. We are able. And you kind of see these two guys. They're kind of cowards. They've sent mama in to do their dirty work. And I shudder sometimes when Hollywood makes a movie of a of a, of a Bible thing because of all the liberalities they take. But here's Jesus, here's Salome, and it's almost like the two boys are standing behind her holding on to mama's apron strings. Are you able to drink the cup? And it's like one head pops out of the other side of mama, the other head pops out of this side of mama. We are able, we are able. The cup is what? It is a picture of the suffering that comes when we follow Jesus. What did Jesus say in the garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified? Lord, if there's any way you, this could be within your will, remove this cup from me, the crucifixion. And so friends, following Jesus and being called to ministry and serving him in ministry is never promised to us to be an easy task. In fact, we are actually promised it will be a difficult one. In this world, you will have trouble. So it's not about power. It's actually going to be about us giving of ourselves and following him selflessly. And, and you see the power kind of thing here when all of a sudden the 10 get wind of what's going on. So Matthew uses a strong word here. The 10, the ten come upon the scene and the 10 are indignant. Hey! Well, we, we should be vice president too. 
By the way, say, you know, every person in this story is a Baptist. This just looks like a Baptist business meeting to me, right? Whole end around power play. And isn't it interesting? Man, the patience, the grace that Jesus has with these people. Three years in, and they're all fighting about who's going to be great. And instead of just hitting them all with lightning bolts and saying, God, can I have 12 more? Probably what I would have done. What does he do? He huddles them up, teaching moment. Uh, come on, guys. And then what does he teach them? Well, look at verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the Lord had over them, their great ones exercise authority over them. The words there are very strong. They're, they're like tyranny. They're like oppression. The world thinks that what makes you great is to have power. To run over people. And then one of my favorite phrases in the whole passage of Scripture is the first phrase in verse 26. But it shall not be so among you. Don't miss that, students. It shall not be so among you. Every single time in the Bible, in the Gospels, at every turn, we are presented a picture of this is the way the world does it, and this is the way that God does it, and God's way is always better. When he looks at them and says, it shall not be so among you, Jesus is saying, you can do better than the world by following his path to greatness. And I just want to share with you, friends, you know, I went for a little stretch in there where I thought greatness was trying to be famous and trying to pastor the big church and doing all that. And I want to tell you, if your identity in ministry or as a person, if, if, your, if your hopes and dreams and thoughts of greatness are all wrapped up in, in things that you can get or accolades or things you're able to do, if it's centered in you, I'm just going to tell you right now, it will eventually collapse. My identity as a person, as a minister, needs to be firmly rooted in Christ and not in me. Now, just real quick, put, put, put your seatbelt on, okay? I'm going I'm to let you all in a little, insight, little window into my personal life for a second. I'm about to tell you the greatest moment of my life. Are you ready? The point in my life where I was at the pinnacle of my greatness. Here it comes. Y'all ready for it? Was the day that I was elected the captain of the sixth grade safety patrol at W.A. Porter Elementary School. Let me tell you about it just real quick. Oh, 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 I, I, what, as captain, I got to leave class 15 minutes early. I got to go to the office. I went to the office. I got put on the orange vest. I got to hold the handheld stop sign. And as captain, I got to wear the whistle. And as captain, I didn't go to the back intersection behind the school where only like 10 cars went. Oh, no, no, no. I got to go to the front intersection where all the schools were. And every day for about the first two weeks of me doing this job, I walked down there like this. I thought I was hot stuff. I was the captain of the safety patrol. And I, and I, I was drunk with power. You know why? Because as a sixth grade kid, I could tell the parents what to do. 
Oh, I thought I was it. And I'd walk out there in that intersection. Those little first graders would be behind me. And, you know, they don't have very long legs, so they don't move very fast. And I'd, get this, I'd stand out there, and I'd make those parents stop. Oh, I thought that was the greatest thing. And some days, if I was feeling salty, I'd put that stop sign out there, and then I'd just thrust that other hand out here just like that, you know. And so I'd been doing this about two weeks. I thought I was the greatest thing. And after about two weeks of this, here's what happened one day. There's a big old mob of kids. They all come down together, and I just hold out my stop sign, and I'm holding up those parents just thinking I'm so hot and all of the kids are going by well I'm sixth grader I don't know come here from Sikkim and what I'm doing is I've blocked up the traffic for like a half a mile right and I don't realize what I'm doing (laughs) and uh, finally the mom in the minivan right there in front of me she rolls the window down sticks her head out and she says hey step over there get out of the way and let these cars go by And I melted into a puddle right in that intersection. You know, I thought I was so great. I'm going to tell you, students, if you think greatness is anything about you or what you can do or what your position is, eventually it's going to melt into a puddle. That is not the path. So let me just close and say, what is the path of greatness? Well, Jesus tells them to get to the end of this passage. What's the different way? The way that's better than the world? In in verse 26, Jesus says, If you want to be great, then you must be a servant. And if you want to be first, you must be a slave. And Jesus models it for us, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. In about one week or so, Jesus is going to give the ultimate act of service when he dies on the cross. But friends, can we go back to this real quick? The night before Jesus dies, he's going to show these disciples. He's going to give them a living picture of what greatness really looks like. I want, to, I want to share it with you. So here you are. You're going to go into the church. You're going to be in ministry. You're going to do all this stuff for the Lord. Friends, just, just, just drop this. And the night before he was crucified, Jesus gave him a living example of what it looks like to be great. And when they had finished supper, he took off his outer cloak and he filled a bowl full of water. And he got a towel and he got on his hands and knees and he washed those dirty, gross feet of the disciples. Students, look at me. This is not a picture of greatness. This is a picture of greatness. God has not called you to this. He has called you to this. And you're never going to get here. And you're never going to be great. And you're never going to be a servant and a slave of God until you first and foremost die to yourself. You got to die to all of this of its money and power and fame. And you got to die to all of that. You got to die to all of that. You have got to come to him and his idea of what is great. And yield yourself to that. Jesus said, you want to follow me? 
Take up your cross and follow me. One of the students in a preaching class I had one time <laughs> preached that text, and he said, now what Jesus is talking about there is, Jesus is talking about everybody has a cross to bear, like their mother-in-law. Uh, no, you know what I think Jesus is saying right there? I think Jesus is not talking about having a cross to bear. I think he's talking about a cruciformed life. Meaning, huh, I'm only saved one time. But every single day, I die to self. Every single day before my feet touch the ground, I nail to the cross my flesh, my pride my arrogance, my worldliness, I nail it to the cross. And I say, today, Jesus, is not about me and this. It's about you and this. You know, supposedly when James Calvert went with his wife to the Fiji Islands in the 19th century, in the modern church age, to, to be one of the first foreign missionaries, on their way to the Fiji Islands that was inhabited by cannibals, supposedly the captain of the ship got wind of the fact that Calvert and his wife were going to, to the Fiji Islands. And he, and he went to Calvert and he said, you, you don't want to go to that island. That, that, that's very dangerous. And Calvert was resolute. No, we're called to go there. And, and daily the captain would come to Calvert and, and, and no, no, I mean, there's cannibals there. The, you know, and then finally, as they got very, very close to the Fiji Islands and to dropping the Calvert's off. Finally, the captain comes to Calvert and he just begs with him and he pleads with him and he just says it as, as clear and as stark as he can say. He says, listen to me. Do not step foot on that island. If you do, you will die. And Calvert looked at him and said, sir, we died before we left on this trip. Friends, that's the path to greatness. Let's die to ourselves. Let's understand what Jesus says makes us great. And let's serve him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this passage of scripture today. And thank you, Lord, for what we learned from it. I pray for these students, God, that they would not misunderstand greatness. But Lord, that they would do better than the world and follow you in dying to self and seeking to serve, seeking to give of themselves every day. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us this incredible picture, this incredible model and example of what greatness is, not, not to come to be served, but to serve and to give your life. Lord, may we give our lives to you to fulfill the calling that you have put upon our lives to follow you not only as your children in faith, but as your ministers of the gospel. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.